to get a chance now to have a very interesting panel that is going to take a look at a number of different ways that the technology of today is helping us get out the word about what is being done in this incredibly competitive world where everybody is screaming for people's attention. The panel is going to be moderated by Seth Porges, who is a cultural and technology journalist and a contributing writer for Bloomberg News, Forbes, and New York Magazine. He is also a filmmaker and television personality, regularly appearing on MSNBC, CNBC, Fox News, and on the Travel Channel series Mysteries at the Museum. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Mr. Seth Porges. Hey, guys. It's on. All right. This is the 3 p.m. panel, which is innately challenging, because when you're in school, 3 p.m. means time to go home, and you guys are still here, so we're in like extracurricular territory right now. And I want to thank you and thank everybody here. So we're going to do our best to uh, fight the fact that I think the coffee dried up a couple hours ago and keep these eyelids going. I just want to introduce my esteemed panelists here first, who are awesome. I kind of feel like Sam Jackson and the Avengers, and we've kind of compiled these superheroes here who can talk to us about things, each with their own perspective, and maybe together we can meld it into something that's greater than the sum of our own experiences and our own knowledge. So starting right here next to me, this is Rosa Ferre. Uh, she is the head of exhibitions and culture activities at the Center of Contemporary Culture at Barcelona at the CCB. CCCB. She was the impetus behind a new line of projects that under the name Beta Series, combine artistic and cultural creation with scientific research and social innovation. So quick round of applause, we're gonna to try to do this like, okay. We could be here all day applauding everybody every time here, but then we'd just be the Oscars. Okay, um, Brandon, Brandon B. Mike Odoms is a New Orleans-based visual artist and filmmaker, received national attention in 2013 for a series of graffiti murals murals, uh, depicting iconic African-American civil rights leaders at the deserted Florida Avenue public housing complex in New Orleans, Ninth Ward. Give it up for Brandon, quickly. But not too much yet. Lydia Steyer, 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 I should Steyer. know. Steyer. is a Berlin-based, although you never know it from her accent, opera director who just finished a run of Turandat at the Cologne Opera, twice nominated for Germany's prestigious Faust Theater Prize. She's also known for directing smaller fleet productions of new music and opera designed to draw on the broadest audiences possible. So, quickly, don't let her feel left out. Great. So, you guys, I was speaking to you guys all backstage, and you guys all have these incredible stories about projects you guys are working on that are really aimed at doing what this panel is about, which is how do we reach people who might not be involved or engaged in arts? How do we reach new audiences? How do we bring art to people where they are? So, Brandon, I want to start with you here. You tell me, first of all, what did you do at this public housing complex if nobody, if you're just telling like an alien in Mars, what, what did you do here? <laughs> I mean, to me, art is about communication, so the goal was to communicate in a very specific way what was happening in New Orleans at the time, which is still happening. I mean, in New Orleans, there was a large conversation about place, about housing, about displacement, and instead of having these conversations in indoor spaces or in sanctuary spaces or whatever, we wanted to have them in the streets, and so, Basically, I legally trespassed into this apartment complex. I was abandoned since Katrina. Started painting murals. Statute of limitations has ended though, by now, right? Yeah, it was okay. always, yeah. We, we hopped the fence and started painting these okay. murals, but specifically to communicate with the people who lived in that area, to create or to highlight narratives that uh, came from similar scenarios. And we wanted the art to, well, actually, I won't even take ownership of it because it happened organically. Like, we, we didn't walk in with a manifesto and say, okay, this is what the goal of this project will be. It wasn't even a project. It was just this idea or this response to what was happening using art. As a result, community developed in that space on terms of people came to the space to find the art. People were forced to, to communicate with each other or, or to ask the questions of why is this here, what could be here in the place of what is currently here. That project led to another project, which led to another project, and it's really been engaged in this idea of how art has the power to bring people together, but also be truthful to what's happening, but think about what can happen in the future as well. So, so when we were talking backstage a little bit about this, you, you told me that this building had basically been abandoned, mm -hmm. and it's in there sort of like as a, as a blight on the city, nobody was doing anything with it, and you saw that, I guess, as like a blank canvas, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, so 
you know, this was not something that was marketed or official in any way. And the idea of word of mouth is something that's been talked about a lot today already. So when you're engaging your community to make them a part of it and to contribute to it and then see it, how exactly did you activate the word of mouth network that allowed it to become what it became? Well, first of all, to not think about it as a blank canvas. So yeah. we walked in and, and understood that this space existed and there was already a story on this wall a story that people were ignoring or that people were either told to look the other way from. So a large part of it was to draw attention to that story that was already there. The fact that using New Orleans in specific, the, the illusion was that everyone who just were displaced after Katrina had an opportunity to come back. But yet all these abandoned and blighted property reminded us the fact that these were homes of people who could not return. So a large part of it was just being truthful. Um, one of my favorite individuals in history, Paul Robeson, said artists are the gatekeepers of truth. So it was just responsibility to go into this space and say, you know what, we have to be truthful to what this was and what's happening. And I think that's what forced people to pay attention and what forced them to authentically respond to the space. So it, did, it wasn't just this cool art thing happening. It wasn't like, oh, look at these cool pictures. It was this level of truth that wasn't happening in conversations in New Orleans at the time. And is your, this one or the second, you know, you mentioned that this, this concept kind of had a couple iterations. Mm -hmm. the, um, is your, this one or the other one, you mentioned to me, in order to actually view the art, you had to go through a, lot of, a number of steps. You had to kind of know where to sneak in the fence, how to get into the building. And uh, tell me a bit about sort of like just the procedure that people had mm -hmm. to go through, the hurdles they had to go just to see the art and they can just walk into a museum. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and what that might have done for the experience in the community, even if it was not something by design, but just out of necessity. So it's three projects, Project B, Exhibit B, and Studio B. Project B was the illegal one, yeah. where anyone who experienced it had to experience at some level of, of, of discomfort. They had to either hop a fence, sneak through a fence, or walk through a track of mud. It wasn't as simple as, here is the art. You had to climb stairs that were destroyed. And I think what, would force, what that force was this level of struggle that immediately leveled the playing field for all people in, that were present. Everybody understood that they had to basically uh, go through something to, 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 to visit or to view the space, and it, it forced a level of respect and appreciation for the work. Um, and I think it also humanized the space in a way that made it so that it wasn't something you could ignore. You had to physically get dirty with the space, and hopefully, as a result, ask questions about what could be in that space or what should be in that space. It reminds me of like nightclubs where they have all these rules or procedures or passwords. There's something kind of almost fun about it, even if you know you never set out to build it. It's probably one of the things people end up talking about is the actual process of entry. Right? Yeah, it, it definitely was a thin line between um, adventure for the sake of adventure, and once again, that's why the idea of truth was so important with these series of projects because we felt, or at least I felt, that I wanted to be as confrontational as possible because I knew there would be this level of. Uh, adventure or thrill-seeking that would, would, would yeah. inspire people. So I wanted, once they got in those spaces, to be confronted with truth in a way that forced them to realize, oh wait, I'm standing in someone's living room. Oh wait, why is this person no longer here? Oh wait, what are the, what are the ways that I can be involved in helping this person come back? Um, and that was a large part of what the art was yeah. intending to do. So, so Lydia, so, so you, are, you, you direct opera. Yes. Um, so when, when most people think of the audience for opera, the, the stereotype is not uh, a younger person. It's, it's not a cooler person. It's, oh. <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's uh, not what people, I mean, opera is cool, I think, but okay, the stereotype is this. Right. So how do you um, approach opera in a way that, that aims to broaden this audience and to bring in these people who might traditionally have been ignored by the opera community? Uh, well, to start from the beginning about my background, I, uh, I moved to Europe about 15 years ago uh, to a magical land where they invest money in the arts. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, I know. So, um, uh, so one has a lot more liberty to play with uh, content form um, within opera. And I was talking to Gail a little bit earlier about the fact that all artistic directors, and some of you here are clearly artistic directors um, or arts organizers, like most of what you do is corral rich people into giving you money. That's what you do. Like how much, how, what percentage of what you do is, is planning programming and engaging interesting artists. And it, it's, it's absolute madness. And so um, a lot of what you see in the US as far as opera goes, and the reason that everybody thinks it's sort of for old, uncool people. <laughs> uh, 
is, uh, is that a lot of the money and you know, the tastemakers in opera are not the organizers, the people, or the artists even, it's the people that fund the opera. Uh, because there isn't private investment, in the, uh, public investment in the opera. So you're dealing with, and, and I probably used this term unkindly before, but uh, old rich white ladies, being that old rich white men are the camels that bring the old rich white ladies <laughs> to ballet <laughs> and opera. Um, and, 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 and because of the fact that it's all old rich white ladies, this is the kind of product that you're looking at on stages. You're looking at extremely traditional productions, corsets, the big wigs, and, and almost across the board at every large opera house in the United States, that's what you're looking at as far as product goes. However, in Europe, it's completely different. Um, you, there, there is public funding, uh, vast, sometimes limitless amounts of uh, public funding, and you're allowed to fail. And in fact, there's a mandate to fail. To, um, we were just talking, one of my mentors is Calixto Bieto, who's a relatively um, a controversial uh, Catalan director, and he, it's always lots of blood on stage, um, uh, like the Carmen, which is about human trafficking, and uh, uh, like Cars just, and exactly, it's just powerful, it's immediate, yeah. you can use um, uh, a visual nomenclature that is much more relevant to what we see right now, and one can, can deal with um, sort of tricks of context and, and taste, and, and one, can, one, ha one can be bold enough to offend, because one can expect an audience to need that sort of, um, to, to, to first of all be able to understand the intercontextuality of it, to know the stories well enough from having a background in uh, opera, to know the story of, you know, even the basics are like Hensel and Gretel and the magic flute, and up until much more complex bits of literature, but, um, Sorry, I haven't answered that question at all, what you just no, said, no, but, the, you... but um, oh my god. There you go. Thank you, I'm breaking furniture. <laughs> um, uh, so, so there is a lot more opportunity to be alternative with the material and to reach people that may be younger and cooler and of different backgrounds, uh, be it ethnic or socioeconomic. Um, and also a lot of what uh, companies both here and in Europe are trying to do as far as reaching broader audiences is a lot with um, live streaming, uh, a lot with um, the Met broadcasts, the, the high-definition broadcasts, but then this also opens the debate as to whether or not that is something that encourages participation in this larger cultural sphere, or if it's a, sort of a, a further fragmentation that sees everybody streaming concerts in their living rooms in their underwear with red wine. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I live in New York, and I'm sure you do this elsewhere in the country, they you know, do the live stream to the movie theater sometimes of these operas. Mm -hmm. And the question maybe I've been trying to get an answer to, if I go to a live stream of the opera, should I dress up? <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah. No, just the opposite. Why would you go? No, 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 you have to wear okay. PJ pants. Got it. <laughs> Rage yeah. against the machine, yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. so, so let's, let's you know, meet our third panelist here and, and what she does. So, so um, Rosa here mixes science into art in ways that we know talking to you backstage about what you do. It struck me as you're kind of using art as a teaching tool in many ways to, and I, I love that you're shaking your head right now because I want you no. to tell me I'm completely wrong. You are totally wrong. Just take, yeah. take the baton from my hand and tell us what you do. You know, I will also explain a little bit uh, the context of uh, my place because it's not a museum, yeah. it's a center of uh, contemporary art. So we, uh, I was uh, appointed to be the director there four years ago. And the, the, the president asked me to, to try to involve uh, the new generations of audience, uh, young people, because the CCB was open 20 years, uh, 24 years ago, something like that. And uh, the audience uh, grown together with the center and with the projects. And when I arrived, it, people, the audience was uh, with an average of uh, 45 years or something like that. So, uh, as we are not a museum, uh, we have a total freedom of uh, programming whatever. So this, uh, in, uh, uh, in part, is something really uh, challenging, but at the same time, you, you are like, you know, in the context of the contemporary culture, you can do whatever you want. 
And you, you need to think uh, what is relevant, what is relevant for your context. I think that uh, many of uh, the, the people uh, talking today, uh, you talk about relevance. And I think that uh, relevance, context, context are uh, the most important thing. As she says, uh, as, as uh, Lydia said, uh, we are a public institution, also we don't need to, to fundraising. We, we do it to improve the, the projects and to do bigger things, but we have the money from the local government and from the regional government. So we need to work for the citizens, uh, for our city. And it's uh, really funny because we are close to the Museum of Contemporary Culture, so uh, we don't do the things that they do. We are like complementary. And uh, they have about 80% of the visitors, uh, they are tourists. Mm. And we have 80% of uh, local visitors. So uh, I decide uh, to do research and, and trying to find the new audiences. And, uh, I thought, what is contemporary culture and how, contemporary, how culture has changed in the last five years? It has to do with technology and how technology is changing our life. I'm totally, I totally agree with uh, Stephen and uh, many of the things that he said. I, I, I'm with him. Uh, and then I decide to invent or a little bit force uh, the, the format of the exhibition. And uh, I did a strange experiment. I think one of the most interesting things in my position is I can take risks. And I think that for uh, going to new audiences, you, you need to have risk and to have the possibility of fail. So I went to, to, to talk to my board and say, OK, we, we are doing exhibitions which are not exactly exhibitions, which uh, they have uh, activity inside the space. And uh, we will work with artists, but not only with artists, also with the universities uh, that do research in very uh, important uh, issues. And then I went and I said, OK, we are going to do an exhibition about big data. And they were like, no, my God, <laughs> nobody will come. This is, no, they, they were afraid of this uh, strange uh, change. And then I said, uh, I think that uh, in, uh, at last, in our context, in Barcelona, uh, we have a strong community of uh, people uh, doing, meaning designers, um, uh, architects, uh, artists, which are working with the, the new technologies, and that not only working with them as a tool that we, we were talking about that uh, with uh, Maria, with um, Luz, no? Not as a, not only as a tool, but also, as a research uh, project, meaning uh, why big data is important to our society. And then uh, we did this um, project, and we, we, we present uh, artworks, uh, films together with uh, prototypes coming from the universities. And I, I think that the important thing uh, for the uh, successful of this uh, project was that I involved all the city in the in the exhibition making. So at the end, when we opened <laughs> two years after or one and a half year after, all the city was involved. So uh, it was very important for for getting new people in my place. You, you mentioned something that you also mentioned, and we kind of hear a lot here, which is you know it's necessary to be able to fail, and a failure yeah. can of course have these these lessons. I want you guys each kind of you know or or not, but tell me times that you guys have failed in your art, and lessons you pulled about it, and if you guys are that rare diamond who has never failed, maybe you know somebody who has, <laughs> and you observe them and learn from their failures. So just kind of like throw it out there. We're not going to go down the line here. Just like yell it out. Moments where I've failed. Yeah, tell us about your failures and what you've learned. Projects which fail. Well, I landed an enormous failure here in this city. Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, uh, I was given the very rare, wonderful opportunity to direct at Los Angeles Opera in 2010. And, uh, and I had been directing in Europe for several years. Up until then, I directed a production called Lohengrin. Hopefully nobody saw it. It's terrible. Um, and, 
and, and it was a very European production. I had really sort of believed that I was engaged to do something like what I do in Europe here. And, and uh, I, I had really incorrectly estimated what, uh, what a public is looking for um, here. And, and I think if I were to, uh, and I've spoken a lot to other uh, folks that have you know, run houses and, and sort of said, like, what exactly does an American audience expect? And I had, <coughs> it's taken me a long time to realize the sort of innate conservatism that comes out of a, a system that, that, that only relies on, on private funds. Uh, and that was, uh, I made a mistake by, it was like an error, a complete error of, uh, of um, I don't know, it's also hubris back then. I was 31, I shouldn't have thought that much. But you know, it was, um, <laughs> but it was uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of, but, but you have to be able to fail. And of yeah. course you couldn't, I couldn't in LA, and I've had failures also in Europe. Yeah. Uh, often when I can't judge my public correctly. Like I started directing in Switzerland a couple of years ago, and they're far more conservative than the German audiences that like if somebody isn't naked and covered with soup in 10 minutes, then you've done something wrong. <laughs> um, and, and, and I, I, you know, in Switzerland, it doesn't work that way. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, you know, the, the idea, I think it came up earlier today in the entire panels uh, that, that, you know, is there such thing as an, uh, an artist just saying, that this is what I do and this is always what I do and it doesn't matter the context or the public and that's, I think that's an extremely vain way to, th way, way to think. It's an irresponsible way to think as an artist. Anybody else want to, you know, self, you know, tell about your embarrassing failures in a way that's constructive, no? Uh, I fail uh, many times. <laughs> I, I, when I, I, I try to, for example, in my place, uh, I did some performance with artists and uh, we have no an audience for performance, so I forced a little bit uh, them. They were like, we want to escape. <laughs> Two or four, uh, three or four hours of uh, strong performance, or this, these kind of things. No? And also, uh, you know, uh, you don't know, you don't do the exhibitions alone. You work uh, or as a curator or together with other curators. And I try to involve a lot of people. And sometimes uh, it doesn't fit. No, it's like a film. Uh, you feel you feel something or fake or not. Uh, well done at the end, no? So uh, the failure sometimes is this, you are not able to, to fit everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same for you. That, that intangible as well, like you can have the best idea in the universe and if you don't have the right combination of people around yeah. you, then it can fall yeah. apart. But yeah. even if you have a kind of mediocre idea and you have this insane chemistry, yeah. It, it, it can be and something you can always say that the communication was bad because it's all the department right. <laughs> no? that does the communication <laughs> things. No, but, but uh, everything uh, goes together. Also, the, the image of the exhibition, in my case, sometimes uh, it creates a great expectation. And it's something in, I'm trying also to innovate in this way. You know? I mean, I think for me, uh, I struggle with the idea of failure because I don't understand the idea of success, so I'm still trying to yeah. define that in a, in a way. Um, but, but that, based on my idea of art, uh, being an art, a student of art for a long time and, and understanding certain rules that I interpreted from instructors, and then it was enough for me to just distance myself from art altogether and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in that. Got into filmmaking and doing all that stuff. It was street art and, and murals and graffiti that reintroduced me back into art because it was this ephemeral nature of it to the point where the pressures of something needing to, to exist forever. And I think sometimes an artist can be like consumed in this thought of how, does what I, how is what I'm creating justify forever? Like, how is it supposed to last? And for me, that was, I guess, the perception of failure from other people. It was like, why are y'all engaged in this project that will not last past a month, will not last past a year? And for all of us involved, it was just this testimony of, of the present. It was like, you know what, we're creating to have a conversation now. And I think sometimes uh, that can delude the, the, the intention of, it, of work when you're thinking about, okay, this has to last the, the time. It has to forever be referenced and forever be a, a part of the, the, the continuum of art. And we were just saying, no, this is an important issue at this moment. I can care less if, I would prefer if we're not talking about it a month from now. I would prefer if this is no longer necessary and irrelevant. Um, so that, I guess, would be failure, but also, 
organizing, we, we failed, well, I failed a lot in trying to organize. Uh, I thought that I could create this utopia of artists in New Orleans and, and have a bunch of people with the same mind. And I realized that, you know, everybody got their own beat and their own drum, and so it's kind of, yeah. So, Lydia, I want to come back to something you mentioned before about uh, the need to kind of cater to uh, wealthy individuals in, in spaces like opera yeah. um, and, and how that influences what the product actually is and the success of it. Clearly, you know, it seems like spaces like opera could benefit from widening their donor base and thus widening who they're targeting. How do you do that, though? How do you democratize, um, you know, how do, how do you take a space that is typically funded by a small number of very wealthy individuals and crowdfund it almost, spread it out to, uh, in, you know, uh, across the people so that people can perhaps donate less money but still feel stake in it and still be targeted by the producers? That's an excellent question. Um, uh, we saw Yuval Sharon earlier today. His organization, The Industry, has done a really wonderful job in taking opera and making it a very uh, broadly effective way of reaching a public in Los Angeles. I, um, I, I come from, like, like Professor Tepper was talking about these, these uh, fortresses of culture and, and these, these very exclusive spaces, but I think that there is a place for, in ballet, you've got kids that essentially stop formal education at eight or something, they go to a conservatory and they pound their bodies into some sort of submission to make the most beautiful creation in the universe, and then they're wrecked by 26. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, and there has to be a place for that in the artistic firmament. You know, I love, I love the idea of this, this, this horizontal line as far as the arts goes, but there is, the conservatory, be it for dance, be it for music, exists, and I think it's something to be celebrated. And to immediately call her all of those people as being sort of like the bitches of the rich, I'm so sorry, but it's just, it's, 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 it's I think that is, it's, it's a horrible thing to say yeah. for people that have put like spectacular, backbreaking amounts of work. Uh, and, it's, and it's not just, you know, making a Patek Philippe for some, you know, banker to buy in Zurich. It's, it's actually, it's, it's meant to touch us. It's meant to edify us. It's meant to comment on the human experience. And, um, and oddly enough, I think it comes down to being a, a problem with marketing right now. Uh, you know, we can, we can talk about like how many tweets can you fit into a ballet evening, but that's, Okay, a possibility. But, you know, when, when I first moved to, to New York after college, the whole big thing was molecular gastronomy. Oh, yeah. You had to have food that was like a foam. WD-40, right? With a yeah. thing. <laughs> and I mean, that, there was this moment where it had to sort of be this like fragmentation of the experience of food. And then, as a reaction to that, there was like this, you had to have heirloom tomatoes made from seeds that were sort of discovered in this, you know, and, and, and the, the idea of, of taking time and being truthful about the experience of consuming uh, became fashionable and necessary, and we're still in that moment. And I don't understand why we can't somehow market opera and ballet in that matter. Like, turn off your fucking cell phone yeah. and, and be in a space and engage with this music for three hours. And it doesn't have to be exclusive. And I think there are certainly steps that my generation should be taking to, you know, tear the aesthetic um, you know, chains that the rich old white ladies have put on opera off of it and create something truthful and, 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 um, and, and long form and difficult and to celebrate that difficulty and, and the depth of it and to not be so caught up in the broad and to really, really, really take the idea of deep and, and sell it better. So let's talk a little bit about technology here. Obviously, like, the, one of the biggest drivers of word of mouth and uh, knowledge of arts these days are Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and hashtags. You mentioned that your uh, Projects New Orleans had a hashtag is sort of a, an, a governing uh, organizing principle behind them, right? So how do, you know, but, but in a situation now where there's, everybody's doing this, there's so much, you know, museums that once had no camera policies have loosened them dramatically, realizing the necessity of this. How do arts organizations or museums or exhibitors or artists possibly stand out or bubble up when this has kind of become just the absolute standard operating procedure with art these days? Um, I would Jump say, in, here. In, yeah. in, my, in my opinion, I think I'm thinking of times when I would feel encouraged to share yeah. with my phone. 
and it's oftentimes, we, we, we spoke a lot about truth on the panel so far, that word has come up a lot. I think for me is when I see something that's truthful to my experience or truthful to, uh, to what's currently happening, that's when I, I want to like share or want to like um, engage. And I, I think that that is a large part of what was successful about the projects in New Orleans. We were engaged in a level of what we felt was truth telling in a way that force people to uh, honestly communicate back. And, and we asked questions and we, we wanted to listen. And when you engage people from that perspective of not just sharing this for the sake of you being present, but how do you share as a part of being engaged and in, in being in dialogue, um, I think those were the most successful parts. Like when it wasn't just a hashtag that let you know that you were there, but it was a hashtag that required, required you to respond. Um, and, and then it was more about the conversation um, so I think if that happens, then it all depends on the conversations. And I think the conversations that are, are, are more willing to be shared are the ones that are more truthful about what's happening currently, or ones that imagine what could happen in the future. You know, oh, a good friend of mine, Candy Chang, she's based in New Orleans, and she had the Before I Die wall that she placed in all over, now it's all over the world, where basically she asked the question, before I die, I want to, and then people wrote in place what they wanted to say in these places, and they shared it, but not just for the sake of saying this was here, but it's, they shared it with their own voice, you know what I mean? So I think that's a large part of what can separate, because then it's about different conversations as opposed to one space trying to compete with that space. It's about what conversation speaks to you. And also, I think, interactivity. I think like, a, lot more, a lot of museums now are, are really putting a lot of focus on exhibits that have some interactive element to them, mm -hmm. ones that feel like games or are clearly aimed at people who grew up playing games, for that matter. Uh, like Refinery 29's 29 Rooms thing, the biggest line uh, was for a giant ball pit. Um, you know, people wanted to go into the ball pit, had a bunch of uh, balls that had pandas on them, and take pictures in the ball pit. People wait in line an hour to do that. And wow. you go to, just on the street at the Broad, the Infinity Mirror Room, it's just, it's an Instagram selfie moment. It's, it's like what it clearly is made for. And so you're seeing now museums uh, put in the sense of play and also potentially design exhibits with this in mind. Um, you know, do you think there's any risk of anything once, once exhibits really have this sense that this is a very, very important thing to them, the, the selfie moment, the Instagram ability, the sense of play? Is anything lost if there's too much focus on that in your guys' opinion? It has to be contextual, maybe. I mean, yeah. I, I was at the Jeff Koons exhibit at the Whitney a couple of years ago, and it was designed for selfies. Yeah. It was just the entire thing. You're supposed to stand and pose in front of those big balloon animals and just like reflect yourself and your surroundings. Like it was part of the way you took it seriously. I'm not sure you can do that with Caravaggio, though. Yeah. So it's. it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> But this is a, it's actually a great point, because yeah. one of the things, so I was writing this down earlier, like how, you know, this clearly works for visual art. You can take a picture of it, you can take a picture of yourself standing next to it. Yeah. How do you create some level of like social stickiness or hashtag-based community or something around performance art, about things that are more, uh, you know, ephemeral? Like how do you do that? Have, have you thought about this at all? Or? Oh, I, I just, I, would, I did a show in Cologne. This yeah. is this, this tour note. And, um, uh, they had shuttered their opera house because they were renovating it, and so they had moved everything to this big, essentially like old market hall or like a warehouse. And due to the necessity of there no, being no way to get onto stage without walking through the public, there was this like, ha like 20 minutes before every show where like costumed chorus and soloists would just be like walking around with the audience. And it was the coolest thing ever. It was literally the coolest thing ever, and everybody's like standing there taking selfies with the chorus members that are about to start, and it was this like incredible, beautiful, like this, this um, I forgot to said it earlier, but people want to see the stories, they want to see the making of. There is a sort of desire to look behind the curtain. To build that into the experience was vastly effective, and I think that other opera houses, or ballet companies would be, or, or, or theater companies, anything in the performing arts would be wise to look at ways to, to allow that pulling back of the curtain, either in sort of digital trailers or, or right before the show. Very cool. Yeah, so you know, one of the kind of emerging mediums right now in the world of art and anything else is, is virtual reality, which uh, clearly some artists have done some very, very interesting things from. And in VR, I find it's kind of in an interesting space right now where the rules aren't entirely written. Um, you know, so, so artists are in many ways kind of experimenting and iterating and trying things that eventually might be used by more profit-driven or, or mass-consumed producers. 
Um, have you guys come across anything in VR that you think really uses the technology in a way that you just find incredibly fascinating and mind-blowing and perhaps appealing to you know, demo interesting demographics as well? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us. Yeah. Uh, I discovered a project which is called The Machine to be Another. Mm -hmm. It's a collective of artists. I, 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 only, I, I always work with artists, meaning I do uh, social media with artists, I do uh, educational programs with artists, and I think that uh, this is the difference between doing marketing or doing something special. And uh, this project uh, is about empathy. We, we t today you talk about that, and it was part. It, 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 it was part of an exhibition called Human Plus that talk about the uh, future of the species, and uh, it was amazing. It's a research project, and at the same time, it's a super, a super interesting experience. And uh, it was uh, interactive in a way, so the people uh, went there and could uh, sit and see themselves as other person. Meaning, if you are black, then you see yourself white, or this kind of things. Or if you are a woman, you can see yourself as other thing. No, and we were talking about um, the body. No, and uh, they started the conversation. Uh, about that, about uh, what's the identity, what has to do with uh, your image, and uh, it's something that works amazingly with teens, for example. And uh, of course, there is a group of clever artists behind, and they, they did it really well. And now, this is a project that we want to uh, integrate in our educational programs, and uh, we are working with uh, Centre Pompidou in Paris uh, with. Uh, they, I think it's from the library there that they, they want to, to make uh, uh, the project together with us and with other people, I think, in Canada. So we will have a basis of uh, virtual reality, uh, like a station mm -hmm. for, for different programs, but yeah. al always mediated by artists. Yeah, you guys come across any VR that you find particularly impressive or you want to plug any, potentially? I actually I haven't encountered a whole lot of it mm. in in sort of relationship to the arts yet. Yeah. Um, there, uh, uh, Professor Tepper said before that we'd all be living in a in a reality where we're looking at things through, I mean, some sort of visual interface, and that it's 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 part of everyday life, and this is a language that we have to become accustomed to at some point. And uh, and the thing I, I'm interested to see what deep consumption of art. Uh, how that's affected by this, because we've mentioned things like the cultural space and that there's this communal space where, where art happens, and it is a very powerful thing in a museum or in, in, a, in, a, in a concert or gallery that, that everybody encounters the same thing and that they react to it in different ways. But if what you're looking at is your own iteration of what everybody else is looking at, that the actual sort of consumption is of it, the original, uh, so apprehension of, of visual information is already individualized. I wonder what that means for the a more communal dialogue about uh, an exhibition or, or performance. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to know what that's going to look like. Yeah, I think VR, let's kind of answer my own question. I think VR is, is at times, gets a reputation for being rightfully so innately isolating. You know, you're putting this headset on, you're disappearing. But I think the most interesting applications of VR in a, especially in an artistic, I think context are are the ones that are social and shared and bring people together. Um, you know, at uh, doing the film festival circuit now is, is one called Life of Us uh, that within the studio Chris Milk Studio did, which is really great because it brings two people, you know, in headsets who are isolated into a shared space and all sorts of wacky things happen. And while they're doing it, everybody sort of around them is watching them act in very strange manners. So it becomes this kind of social exercise. It's never the same, of course, each time, but it becomes very fun, very engaging, and, uh, and it kind of knocks down that innate problem of VR in that it potentially could be an isolating mm. experience. Anyway, guys, we're going to wrap this up now. Um, this has been awesome. I just really want to give a giant round of applause for you folks before we hand the mic to you guys. And 
Put your hands up, grab the microphone, and this gentleman will hand it to you. Hi, my name is Maria. I came to um, the United States as a political refugee as a child from Eastern Europe, and, but I've grown up here. So I'm very much American. Um, I feel more American than anything else, although I'm one of those people that is kind of from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And um, as I grew up here and grew as an artist and now as an educator, I'm an opera singer, so I really get what you're saying. <laughs> um, sorry I missed your production. <laughs> Next time. Um, I always wondered, my question was always, why is it in this most powerful country in the world, the wealthiest, is art not um, celebrated the way it is where I originally come from? For example, of, uh, in Bulgaria, where I'm from, you can uh, commonly find like a truck driver that can recite poetry off the top of their head or sing the famous opera choruses. And I've thought about this often, and I've come to my own realization, or at least I think I have it, uh, in, uh, it it's part of the fab, it's not because Bulgarians are somehow more artistically inclined than Americans. I don't think so at all. I th uh, yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. It's that um, it's part of the fabric of that con of of, this, of who we are as a people. And in America, it, I I don't know if that's the that's how it is. So I'm wondering, what is your, especially for those of you who have lived in different parts of the world, do you what do you think about that? As who we are and. Um, as a country, and are we trying to impose, especially in the classical arts, something that doesn't inherently fit with who we are long-term, as far as our history and so on? Does this make sense? Does it my does, question it make does. sense? It really does. Um, yeah, that's, I've heard this question asked a few times, like, is opera, is it a useless form to even have in an American context? Is it only going to be sort of a, a, a strange European caprice in big American cities? filled with rich old white ladies? Maybe. Um, uh, there's a couple of things as far as like arts education goes. I think going to the opera, going to the theater, some form of literature is part of even early childhood education in other parts of the world. Um, uh, certainly, like I, I know at my shows, there's always school trips, little kids. Um, they'll, they'll do like a, a research project on a, on a, on a, on a on a play or on an opera, and they'll present their version of it. it it's really, it's much more intense um, as far as the education part goes. Uh, also, one has to say it is sort of in the fabric of the United States that uh, if it's worth having, it's going to make its own money. Like if there's something worthwhile, it's going to be able to support itself. If it, if it, you know, if it is worth having at all, it will sort of stand up to market pressures. And and I think we're looking at things like healthcare as well as the arts and realizing that things worth having are sometimes uh, the ones that are most critically needing of, of infrastructure from the funding side. And, and that is just, it's too far away from the American bootstraps, if it's gonna, if it's gonna work, you've gotta pay for it yourself kind of uh, ethos. So it's, and I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here is how to spin gold out of financial you know, it's, 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 it's really, it's um, the way that, that, that Americans look at culture and the arts as an added value benefit to a society is, is, is lamentable. Next question on your left. Well, I, can I add something to that? Because it's, it's a different facet of that question. I come from a city that I call the most magical city on the planet, New Orleans. If you haven't visited, please come. We're always welcome. Uh, but in this space, it's like what everyone would define as art is so much interwoven into everyday life that, for example, like you have a kid, or at any moment you're like arm's length away from someone who's probably the most amazing trumpet player on the planet or someone who's the most amazing chef, but it's so connected into everyday life that we don't even like slice it up and say, oh, you're an artist, or you're, you're, you're you know, so it's like it's so connected into, into who we are that one might make a, 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 a critique and say, well, the arts isn't important here, but that's because it's so much meshed together that it's, it doesn't even have its own. And there's issues with that too, because 
there's conversations of sustainability, but it's, it's passed on and it's so connected to everyday life. And it's, it's a measure of, of coping with trauma. It's a measure of just existing. It's a measure of saying, you know what, this is where I'm going to find value for myself and for my community or for my family. I don't have to go and, and stand on a stage and give it to you because I'm going to keep it here and that's good enough for me. And so I think that there's another question about that in terms of, of, of how we define things as quote-unquote art and some things as just the beauty of, 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 of breathing, you know what I mean? And, and I think the legacy that I come from has, has largely been a part of that, saying, you know what, I, I'm going to take this trauma. It, it's like being an alchemist, you know, I'm going to take this trauma and I'm going to recreate this into something beautiful. And it might not be defined by the world as beautiful, but to me, I'm an artist, and to me, you know what I mean? So I see that all the time, and maybe I'm blessed because I came from that such a, a, a cultural city where everywhere you look, you see it to the point where it's not like its own, which once again, I know that could be an issue as well because it's like, well, sustainability and all these other things. But I just wanted to add that to the question to think about it from that perspective too. Hi, everyone. My name is Natasha. Um, I was wondering if whether arts engagement itself um, as a notion or concept is limited to certain um, stakeholders. In other words, do you believe that in 2017 it's possible for someone who's not necessarily doesn't have an MFA uh, or is not well greased and in the collection world to actually really have um, measurable impact in what one might consider arts engagement? I mean, obviously, arts engagement can be you know, um, manifested in different ways depending on what kind of artist you are or what, what, what role you play in the, in, in the arts world. Um, is, is arts um, pretty much a, um, arts engagement itself, is this an open notion or is it a closed notion um, to people who are in the arts world, for example, um, chief curators, museum, um, directors, um, collectors and such? I think it could benefit from more fluidity, certainly. Like, uh, if you have a bunch of gatekeepers that are only MFAs or, or directors of, uh, uh, you know, where, like directors of development that are sort of trained or, or, or you know, um, masters of management in arts, you know, management, et cetera, it, it, these, it's useful to have organizations where there is a good mix of people, I think, in the curatorial roles, that you have people that aren't um, perhaps the, the established elite clique of, of those that run organizations typically, but I do think these people are important as well. And, and perhaps also, you know, it's important to raise people in a scenario where they feel like even if they're not classically trained, they can pick up a paintbrush or an instrument and play so that even if they're not the best in the end, they can appreciate other things and feel a part of the community and some attachments to an appreciation for it. And maybe that is something that we as a culture, country, world, struggle with is, is are making these things that are innately difficult to do feel accessible and open to the layperson, perhaps. Absolutely. There's this sort of, as you were talking about with ballet and opera, this sort of beautiful historic nature of opera, which people don't necessarily appreciate in modern times. Uh, and then you sort of have this battle on the other side with this modern relevancy of modern art, sort of like what Brandon does with Studio B just as far as it being timely, you know, the, the, the societal injustice of African-Americans that was going on in New Orleans, and then it just boomed everywhere else in this country. So I guess the question would be, what can the two disciplines learn from each other, right? So what is there about the, the, the more modern relevancy of, of social injustice art versus this traditional beauty that inherits uh, in, in ballet and opera? Obviously, it's tougher in this country because of the private funding and the rich old white ladies, as you said. But how do, we, how, how do the two disciplines sort of learn from each other? Because that seems to be the topic of like, how do we get what 95% of the art community is doing into the hands of this new, young, sort of, quote unquote, hip generation? Well, I like what Brandon said earlier about truth. And, and a lot of what one sees when, we see, when, when one sees perhaps opera or ballet or some of the older, more traditional, conservatory-driven uh, art forms is, uh, is total artifice. Like, that there's nothing truthful about it. There's nothing relevant to our lives. Um, I think a lot is happening right now as far as, like, casting of very, very diverse singers and dancers in, in, in opera. Like, it used to also all only be, like, white people on stage, white people in front of the stage, just, like, terrifying whiteness everywhere. And, and that's, it's, it's, like, that, that is slowly changing. 
It's slowly changing also in the fact that like opera is becoming more theatrical and that nobody wants to see like an enormous like huge fat lady pretending to be dying of consumption like verisimilitude to some degree theatricality is becoming more 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 useful and and also um like i'm and i love the idea of taking a piece and not just telling the story but telling the truth of it like i'm directing one right now and and the entire theme of it is the unavoidability of conflict you know and to take to take like a theme that is right now like the, the fact that conflict, like we thought, at least I thought growing up, that we were in this uh, sort of impenetrable bubble of peace that would go on forever. I thought there would never be another genocide. You know, we all sort of sat around like super happy in the 90s thinking, well, I mean, not in the Balkans, but other places, um, and, and, you know, thinking that everything was okay. And, and that is not the case. And so like I examine that in a lot of the work that I do. Um, and I use opera as a way to examine these themes. And I think, that's, I think using visual art is a lot of what you do to examine the social themes that are around you. And so, uh, you know, the, the medium is obviously vastly different, like the media, the two from one another, but, um, but the goals of being honest with, in that media are not so far apart. And I, I like the fact that a lot of the, the, the walls are collapsing as far as what created this assumption of uh, elitism in opera, I hope, and you know, certainly across the pond, and, and here to some degree as well, hopefully, increasingly. And I love the idea of, of there being more, more cross-pollination between, between like, urban arts and, and what has been classically treated as like, the high arts. And, and it would be an incredibly exciting thing to, to have that be to have, have much more of a mix going on there. Yeah, I think, I think that's a conversation that's occurring in movies, certainly, where people are like, oh, let's only cast white male leads, because that's all people want to see, and then surprise, you cast a diverse cast, the movies do really well, who would have possibly guessed that would have happened, right? Or um, Broadway, you know, like, like the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, when you're talking about this is, is Hamilton, which is like, oh, surprise, you get a diverse cast, people show up, you know? And it's uh, maybe another, it, it took so long for Hollywood to get there. It took so long for just about any form of art that has these gatekeepers that are commercial gatekeepers, too, to get there that it's, it, you know, I think it's inevitable that hopefully that conventional wisdom will trickle down into the any other form of art as well. Mm. And I also think that it's not only about like the, the audience supporting that, but it's also, I think, the audience being critical in those spaces. So it's like using music, for example, and using hip hop to be more specific. Like I remember moments like, for example, when Mike Brown was dead in the street and there was a list of, Twitter was passing around a list of artists who said nothing. And it was like, we need to make sure we remember that these artists did not show up. These musicians did say, didn't say anything. The next time they put out a product, do not support it. And that immediately, I think, changed the scope. So then you have artists like Beyonce who are like, no, I'm going to make sure I'm saying something. You have all these artists that are now being held accountable because their audience is saying, where were you when we were dealing with this? It's like, OK, you can pretend to support or pretend to, to, to say you're from the spaces that I'm from, but where were you when I, when I needed you the most? And I think that's what helped keep music, what helps keep a lot of art in, in, in check, because I know for me personally, if I ever do something that's distant from my community, like they will keep me in check. They will say, yo, wait a minute, like, what about us? We're, we're being beat up in the streets. Where are you? You know what I mean? Why are you not using your platform to reflect what's really happening? And I think that that's a large part of, of, being, of listening to the audience as well, which I think using Hollywood example, it's true, like, for a long time, it was like, the ears were shut off. It's like, yeah. we're not listening, we're just gonna tell you what women, we think. Women too, any yeah, minorities. Exactly. It's like, I mean, it, 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 you always had your Cary Grant type. That was like, yeah, it's your, your Mel Gibson type for, for decades. And it's like, oh, you know, Fast and the Furious, one of the biggest film franchises ever, has like just the most diverse cast you can imagine. You know, Hunger Games, one of the biggest film franchises, woman lead, female lead. Wonder Woman, made more money than Batman vs Superman. It's in the title, woman, you know? It's right there. And it's people, again and again, just kind of act surprised. Surprise, surprise, Right, surprised. and I, I think that might simply be one yeah. of the fastest ways to create what yeah. the, the, the topic of this panel was, just include more people, yeah. include more of the story. Hi, I'm Red Lazic, and I just want to ask a quick question for the whole panel, <clears throat> reflecting on how in the recent years the digital crea art creation tools have been evolved and developed and impacted the creative process for everyone, along with the social media giving instant access and instant feedback to published art, and more recently the crowdsourcing uh, where you can uh, make art to order, as well as crowdfunding where you can get funds for, for your projects. 
how do you see this uh, three-way impact on the technology, on how art is created, shared, and, and the impact on its on, in development? Um, how do you see this evolving? And what do you think uh, will be the next steps and what do we expect? We work in many projects with platforms for crowdfunding, for example. Uh, and uh, we have now a project uh, that is like, uh, we will try to, to do, uh, it's called Secret Society. And, and it's like a magazine, but a live magazine. And, and you need to, to um, subscribe and, and subscribe like in a magazine and then uh, you can go to this thing that is a new format uh, that we are trying to invent that is uh, like uh, performatic uh, ideas into the stage or something like that made by different curators and artists and yeah we, we I think that uh, to engage new audiences you need to go to new formats and, and copy the things that work in other places and improve them and, and experiment, of course. And, and new media give you a lot of opportunities and also these uh, participative uh, uh, processes or methodologies. Is one add anything to that? I've seen the use of 3D uh, projections in sets. Video projection is enormous as far as like all stage events at this point. Um, uh, I think classical music uh, and to some degree dance lags behind other media, perhaps in using uh, sort of social media to promote, it, to, uh, to promote itself because of rights, actually. Because in order to put a clip of an orchestra doing something on YouTube legally, you have to pay a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. So that, that, that is um, something to be considered when it comes to the modernization or the use of uh, social media when it comes to promoting classical music. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, I think, like something that a lot of different types of, that's gonna be sort of the gatekeeper oftentimes. Like I think a lot of people yeah. who work at museums or anywhere would love to spread their stuff far and wide and bring in these audiences. It's just not always cheap or legal. And yeah. that's something mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe, changing fair use laws in a way that makes it a little bit easier to do this in certain contexts might be something to think about, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna suggest doing that, though. Um, last question here. Hi, I'm Nathan Birnbaum. I'm with the City of Santa Monica Cultural Affairs, and I'm in, involved in, in public funding. I, I help run the grant programs for, uh, for, for the city, and, uh, and for many years have been looking at the situation of public funding for the arts in, in the U.S., which, of course, has come up by the way, I think that the panel has touched on almost every major aspect of the difficulties that we face uh, in, in funding the arts and the problems of risk-taking and, the, and, and the, one of the diff great difficulties of Americans seeing a national culture that should be funded. One of the tricks is that people see culture very locally and personally and we're fragmented into many cultures and so in Germany Spain and, and, and other places in Europe, oftentimes there's more of a, of a sense of a monolithic culture, whereas in the U.S. we have to kind of raise awareness of, of, of people wanting to publicly fund a, a, a more big tent kind of idea of American culture. A lot, a lot of issues here. But one thing I've noticed is that there are clearly pockets in cities around the country where there's a lot of public support for the arts. You don't need to argue to get more money for the arts in New Orleans or in New York or in San Francisco. I mean, there's always people want more, but there's a lot of agreement also in my city, Santa Monica. And so <clears throat> the question, how do we not, how, how can we export the ground level uh, love of the arts and the need for the arts to more, more widely around America so that other cities can have what New Orleans has and other cities can have what San Francisco and New York have? I know it's not an easy question, but I was wondering if you guys have any thoughts about that. I think what New Orleans has is, you, I don't think it's because directly due to funding or directly due to like a top-down approach. I think what New Orleans has is because of this like, yeah, it's just a way of life. It's, it's not like, a, it's, it's, it's just innate, you know what I mean? I think there, but what New Orleans does have that could be researched is, is, is called the culture of economy affairs, where they specified or, or acknowledged that there is a cultural economy that should be invested into. Like, how do you invest into culture bearers so that they could sustain themselves and create 
uh, they basically did the research to show that just as much as you can invest in any other uh, economy, like the culture has a certain economy that should be invested in that would create more jobs, more funds, more, you know, these things. And you could be critical of that in terms of how successful it is, but it is, in a lot of ways, uh, a different approach um, on terms of how we treat culture bearers in New Orleans because they've recognized that people are coming to the city because of these individuals. How can we support and sustain them? Um, so maybe that's a way to, to kind of look into to see how um, cities can look into their own and find their culture bearers and say, okay, well, how can we help you do what you do on a larger scale, you know, so maybe that could be. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, what you're, what you're saying is, is, I think, right on, because right now the reason it's so hard to be any sort of national or in many places state funding for the arts is because the sense that it doesn't actually add value, it's just like a luxury to have. And being able to say, no, having a strong arts community, having strong arts, it drives tourism, it makes people want to, it helps recruitment, it helps brings businesses, it creates a strong sense of local pride and identity, and actually making the economic argument, as crass as it might be, I believe is probably the most powerful one once you start talking to big governments. You know? And with that, I just want to give like, the biggest round of applause all day long for this panel.